a very present help in the time of trouble. Amen. We ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 21. That's the book of John, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 21. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, I am. am. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 10, 1 through 21. And the word of God says this. Truly, truly, I said to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, (coughs) one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may pick it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. For you are my Lord and my Redeemer. It is in our Savior and your Son's name that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're talking about the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Pastor, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the Good Shepherd? You recognize that this is the fourth I am of the seven I am's of the Gospel of John. And this declaration here, he's proclaiming by saying, I am his uniqueness, his divine identity and purpose. And immediately after saying, I am, he tells us that he is also the door. He's the door and he's the good shepherd. He's not just a shepherd, he's the good shepherd. And what does this mean, Pastor? He tells us he's a good shepherd, he's unique in his character, he is the shepherd that we shall not want. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This Greek word good, kalos, means noble, wholesome, beautiful, and it's being contrasted here in our passage today against wicked, which means mean and foul and unlovely. It signifies that God is good in his inward character. He is innately good. He is the good shepherd because he is inherently good. He's the definition of good. And it also is going to declare in this passage today that he's the door of the sheep. He's making a great contrast here between himself and all the Sadducees and Pharisees. He compares them 
as being just hirelings and hired hands who really don't care anything about the sheep. He further speaks of them as being thieves and robbers, those who enter the sheepfold another way and cannot come through the door because they are not good shepherds. Christ is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He has all the characteristics, brothers and sisters, of a true shepherd. And even though in our day we have a lot of hired hands behind the pulpit, and as soon as a wolf appears, they will flee. They will abandon the flock, leaving them to be scattered. I think it's best understood, or it's easier to understand this passage, if you recognize that sheep are utterly stupid. They're defenseless. They're dependent upon the shepherd. The shepherds are always subject to danger and must be under a watchful eye. Because, you know, the sheep didn't know anything about rushing waters or rushing walls of water coming down from the valley suddenly. Or how heavy rainfalls could sweep them away. That robbers were poised to steal them and wolves might attack them. You know, it was David that tells us how he killed a lion and a bear while defending his flock in 1 Samuel 17 and 36. He was the one that was out there doing the snows of the winter, the blinding dust of the summer, long and lonely hours. Those are what true shepherds still deal with today, long and lonely hours patiently enduring for the welfare of the flock. But Jesus, he laid down his life for the sheep. On the cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for his own. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is through this great sacrifice that we know his voice. And because we know his voice, we respond to him. We see here, Jesus starts to speak and tell us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. He begins with these solemn words, Truly, truly, I say to you, which means it's, I'm telling you a truth of a truth, or it means amen, amen. He gives us an introduction here, and he uses these metaphors of this first century shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He's focusing here on the Pharisees that he just had an incident with in chapter 9. He understands that they are thieves and robbers purely because of their blindness and the blindness makes their guilt evident because they still do not believe in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man and they're coming into the sheepfold another way. This strengthens the connection between chapter 9 and chapter 10. And then he says, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now first you got to understand this whole idea about a sheepfold. 
a sheep pen. Uh, it might be part of a family's courtyard. It's better to think of it as a large independent enclosure where several families might keep their sheep under the guardian or the gardens of a shepherd. And those who were authorized to bring their sheep and then check in with the person at the gate and then able to come back and take their sheep out to feed them or such, they would come through the door. Now, those who had an interest in stealing sheep or wounding the sheep would find another way in. They would climb in. These words, thief and robbers, are almost synonymous in English, in Greek, kleptes and lates suggest that they are thieves, they are insurrectionists. But Jesus' point here is that unauthorized people who enter the sheep pen by another way only enter to brutalize the sheep. But this is not the case of a true shepherd. That's why he tells us, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You see, a true shepherd knows his sheep and the watchman recognizes that he is a good shepherd. You know, it's really hard to read through this first two verses of this passage without thinking about Ezekiel 34, without thinking about how the Lord berates the shepherds of Israel, all of the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day, for slaughtering the choice animals and clothing themselves in wool rather than looking after the flock. Take a listen to Ezekiel 34 and 4 for just a moment. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. But God insists that if you are his under-shepherd, you can never forget that these are his sheep. And, this, and that's no way to treat his sheep. The Lord tells us in Ezekiel 34, 10 through 16, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Lord says, I will rescue my flock. I will bring them out from the nations. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend to my sheep. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Then later on in Ezekiel 34, 23-25, look what it said. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make my covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. David goes on later to rule within the constraints of this covenant, a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant. And then all of this comes to a 
climactic end in probably Ezekiel 37 when you see the revitalization of the people in the valley of the dry bones. So this is the background and the context in which Jesus is speaking, speaking about these religious leaders as thieves and, rod- and robbers, and that they're more, listen to this, they are more interested in fleecing the sheep than nurturing and guiding the sheep. That interest is still very active today. They don't want to pray for you. They want to pray on you. These are leaders that we saw in the ninth chapter. They didn't have ears to hear, eyes to see the claims that Jesus was sent as the Son of Man. Instead, they belittled him and expelled the sheep. We see here in verse 3, the watchman, the porter, recognizes the shepherd and he opens the door for him. The sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Isn't it wonderful to have a Savior that knows the very, your name, your nature, your purpose, who even knows every hair on your head or knows you have no hairs on your head? He calls out his own. Now, this was a common practice in the Near Eastern shepherds that would stand in different spots and they would make sounds and they would call out their sheep with a particular uh, response. But this shepherd shows intimacy because he goes even further and he calls them out by their name. It means he knows them individually. Isn't it good to be known And not only he calls them out, he then gets in front of them and he, what, leads them. You see, all of these sheep Jesus is talking talking about here saying they come out of the pen of Judaism. And he's calling his own sheep individually to understand that he is the Messiah. And the way this, the way Jesus is speaking here There is an assumption here that the ones that he calls out as his own recognize that they were his own before he called them. Look at John 6, 64 through 65. John 6, 64 through 65. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then look what it says parenthetically. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus knows whose are his before he even calls them. We see here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 10 here, He has brought out his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow. You know, if no one's following you, you're not leading. You're just taking a walk. But Jesus says that he has brought out his own and he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, 
but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. They remember when they were a child, stranger danger, right? So unlike Western shepherds who drive the sheep by using a sheep dog, the shepherds of the Near East, both now and in the day of Jesus, use their voices to lead their sheep. Such a shepherd goes ahead of his sheep and draws them and leads them by his admirable picture of this master-disciple relationship. And the sheep follow because they simply know his voice and they trust his voice and they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. They understand that a stranger that's going to be introduced later in this passage might be a thief or a, roger, a robber. And the elect sheep follow Christ. Verse 6 adds something interesting here. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, or rather this is a figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. This phrase, figure of speech, parad mia, is used nowhere else. It's used two more times than John, but nowhere else in the Gospels. And it's a favorite term, kind of like parabole, parable, which never occurs in John. But whatever form that Jesus devised to speak to them, what was he telling them? He was telling them, the reason you can't understand what I'm saying is that you are not my sheep. And they began to understand, even in their limited understanding, they used that to reject him and to call his ministry fraudulent. Have you noticed something about the book of John since we've been in here that misunderstanding is frequently followed by deep explanation in John's gospel. Most of all, Jesus wants to clear up identities here. He wants us to know who he is, and he wants us to know who they are. Most importantly, he wants us to know that he's not a thief or a robber. Look at John 10, 7 through 8. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Jesus is saying, I'm not just another shepherd that goes through the door. You need to recognize I am the door. I'm the way you get in here. He's the door to the sheep pen. He's the gateway. You know, shepherds would often sleep at the gate of the sheep pen so they could be awakened if a sheep tipped out in the middle of the night because they would have to climb over him. Jesus is the door. He's the one that gives us access to God. He allows us ready entrance and egress, in and out. He's the one that shows us a contrast between being a shepherd and being a thief and a robber. You know, many times Jesus is depicted in the New Testament as being meek and mild. Don't believe that for a second. 
Jesus is talking. Jesus is not in the back room talking about the Pharisees here. He's in their face saying, everybody who came before me is a thief and a robber, and that includes you. And when he says that, he's not talking about Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, not those who heard his voice, not those who have been faithful to him. He's talking about all these messianic pretenders who promise the freedom for the people, but really lead them into war and suffering and ultimately slavery. What you need to recognize this morning, you need to come to terms to whether you are sitting under a pretender or a contender. Because you, you are really putting your life at risk if you don't know who you're sitting under. But we see Jesus here as he tells us in 9 and 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The idea here is Jesus is making sure we recognize that he draws out his own flock. He doesn't draw out a mixed fold. Jesus is the door. He's the sole means by which any sheep could enter into the safety of the fold or could go out into the pasture. This shepherd leads us in and out. And you know, I think Jesus is really alluding to Numbers 27, 15 through 18 here. Numbers 27, 15 through 18, where we find Moses as Moses is praying for a successor who will lead the people of God and bring them in and out. Look at Numbers 27, 15 through 18 for a moment. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirit of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. You know Joshua's name means in Greek, Jesus. We recognize here, that this thought is also akin to John 14 and 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. While thieves and robbers come only to kill and destroy and steal, Jesus says, I come that they may have life to the full. He's insisting on just more than life, but eternal life. Do you recognize the moment you give yourselves over to Christ, the moment you surrender, the moment by faith you believe in Christ Jesus as the Son of God, you have eternal life. It's the, uh, not, it's the right now, but not yet. 
You have eternal life right now, but you don't have the full benefits yet because you're still in eternity present and not eternity future. But once you have given yourselves over to Christ Jesus, you recognize that he is the only source of the true knowledge of God. He's the only fountain that you can drink from that will give you spiritual nourishment. He is the only spiritual security that you have. You have no ability to protect yourself outside or devoid of Christ Jesus. But this world, we seek humanistic saviors, political saviors, Hitler, Stalin. But they only come to confiscate personal property, steal. They only come to ruthlessly trample over human life, kill. They come to take whatever they can savage, destroy. But this is not what Jesus does. He comes that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Psalm 118.20 says, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Psalm 118.22-24 says it this way, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then from a New Testament reference, Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, I love this. Have you not read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This same Jesus who is the voice that the sheep know, this Jesus who is not a thief nor a robber, this Jesus is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 11, chapter 10 of John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We saw in verses 7 through 10 is Jesus is depicted as the door of the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. But now we see that it's more than our English adjective good. That the whole idea or the whole job of a shepherd was incredibly tiring and sometimes dangerous. This word good also signifies, symbolizes nobility of worth. Jesus is the noble shepherd. He's the worthy shepherd. Later on in John, you will see he's the true light. He's the true vine. He's the true manna. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So here, this is to express to us that he is the genuine antitype with roots deep into eternity. Jesus is not contrasting himself with anything that's temporary, for he is the good shepherd. I see an allusion here also to Zechariah 
eleven seventeen. Zechariah eleven seventeen. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, and let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blind. You see, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This means that you must be always prepared to do this. You must always be willing to risk your life for the ones that the Lord has given you the ability and the privilege to shepherd. We saw what David had to deal with back in 1 Samuel 17:36. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose again, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. You know, I really like that last piece when he says, this uncircumcised Philistine, because remember, everybody was scared of Goliath, right? And David is saying, wait a minute, this is an uncircumcised Philistine, so he's uncircumcised. There is no covenant between him and God, and he's a Philistine. And you worried about him? You know, we who have covenant with the Lord, we who are in the Lord's family, we who are more than heirs, but co-heirs with Christ, should not worry about unbelievers regardless of what they might possess. You see here that the shepherd is willing to risk his life to lay it down. And Jesus is saying here that he's doing it in the authority of his Father's will. And this is far from being an accidental death. This qualifies him to be the good shepherd. In fact, it's presupposed in Hebrews uh, 13 and 20 when it says, the great shepherd of the sheep. And by his death, he blots those who want to ravage the pen. Jesus also said in what, John 12, 32, and if I, or rather, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. You know, every time we know he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, when you see this preposition, it's always in John speaking of something with a sacrificial context. You see John 6, 51, it says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the life of the world is my flesh. John 13, 36 and 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. We see here that this death is not a death to be toyed with. Jesus understands that his sheep are in mortal danger and their defense is through a shepherd who lays down his life so that they might be saved. He lays down his life for the redemption of his sheep. He does this intentionally, understanding the sacrifice will pay the sin debt for those who could never pay it on their own. Verses 12 and 13 says this, chapter 10, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Just stop there for a minute. I think it is so interesting that the wolf is not leading them anywhere organized. His goal is just to snatch them and scatter them to leave them out on their own, that they are in more peril if they are sheep without a shepherd. It goes on to say he flees them because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. These thieves and robbers, they're obviously wicked. And a hired hand is someone who's committed to his own well-being and not to the well-being of those that he has vowed to protect. When things become too hot and things become too dangerous, he is willing to just receive his pay and run. He abandons the sheep and leaves the sheep to their own devices because in his heart, he does not care anything for the sheep. All he wants to be is paid. It goes on in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is a repetition of verse 11, but now it emphasizes a sacrificial theme. He wants us to understand that there's a mutual relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, and it is like the relationship between the father and the son. That is that intimate. The fact that the shepherd knows his sheep, and they know their shepherd, and the son knows his father, and the father knows his son, ensures that this relationship is grounded in intimacy and will not be ever given up. Jesus tells us later that no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. And then you see in 16 an evangelistic flavor here. As he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
so we will be one flock with one shepherd. Here he's talking about again, if you picture uh, the sheep pen being the sheep pen of Judaism, that now the focus goes toward the Gentiles. <clears throat> that he's leaving the pen of unbelieving Jews and he referencing that he's going to call the Gentiles who are his to his own. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says it this way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the death of Jesus Christ was not only for the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children, the Gentiles as well, who belong to him. The vision of unity, the one flock, the one shepherd, we see come through clearly in the second, in second chapter of Ephesians, that he made the two one. Verse 17, he tells us that this is just one aspect of his father's great love for him. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus has this relationship with his father, a relationship that is so fundamental that it's really an extension of their oneness. Jesus comes in obedience to a disobedient world that salvation might be made possible for those who would trust him. The love of the father and the son is unqualifiedly linked here. It's linked to the obedience of the son and his utter dependence upon him. It comes to fruition in the greatest act of obedience we've ever seen, obedience unto death, even death on a cross. The humiliation and the shame of Golgotha, the isolation and the rejection, what he feels and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse he takes upon himself, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Do you recognize that the death of Jesus Christ was divinely appointed? Do you recognize that the Father not only sanctions it, but the Father sanctions his resurrection as well? Look at what Jesus is saying to us in 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Even though the enemies of Christ, yes, they are conspiring against him. Yes, they want to kill him. Yes, they've construed a fallacy to make this happen. 
but it's no different than what Joseph tells his own brothers in the round of 50th chapter of Genesis. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 26 through 28. Give you a minute to get there. Acts chapter 4, 26 through 28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, now this, this is the important part, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. They did not catch God on a bad day. He appointed this. Every Christian must understand when they look at the crucifixion, they need to look at it from God's perspective because it's going to assure that nothing in life takes place outside of God's sovereign plan. Not even the most significant event in redemption history can be construed any other way. The point of the sacrificial death of the shepherd Jesus Christ is not by accident or by mere faith. It's not a tragedy perpetrated by some misguided man, but it's the plan of the Father. And the Son's obedience to that plan brings down the salvation that we all enjoy who have given our lives to Christ Jesus. The Father sanctions this. The Father delivers his son. And when Jesus is rising from the dead and he takes up his life again, he glorifies his Father with that life. Lastly, we see here the reaction of the still unbelieving Jews in verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I just want to pick up on this last he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? The three times that God speaks audibly in the New Testament, what does he say? This is my son in which I am pleased. Listen to him. This goes back, I mean, this is like being in the Garden of Eden again. Did God really say? And then the others who could narrow this down to a single act. This doesn't sound like a man who's oppressed by demons. Because can a demon open the eyes 
of the blind? No. This sounds like the words of a man that is not possessed by a demon, but possessed by an insatiable love and a sense of honoring his father. This sounds like a man who is still on the journey of really chapter 9, that he wants to open more eyes that are spiritually blind to the fact that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And even today, if your eyes have been blinded by the scales and sensuality of this life, it can change in a moment if you are willing to allow your heart to answer that effectual call, that tugging that you might feel at this moment, that understanding that you can no longer operate outside of the will of God. You can no longer take care of yourself. There must be a greater way to ensure that you reach the proper destination. Whether you or, believe it or not, everybody, biblically speaking, everybody receives eternal life. Scripture clearly says, on that day, there will be those who will raise up for the good they have done, and they will be given glory, and those that will be raised up on that last day for the evil that they have done, and they will be judged for it. So everybody gets eternal life. It, the key here is your destination. The key is whether you want smoking or non-smoking. The key is that there, everyone, including the one speaking to you, will one day die. And then the judgment. But if you are in Christ Jesus' family, that it will be as simple as walking out of this sanctuary into the North X. Absent from the body is present with the Lord you immediately go into the immediate state. The immediate state is consciousness with the Lord or consciousness in hell until that last getting up morning where you will be called up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. There is only one path that will ensure the proper destination, and it comes through Jesus Christ, who is the Good Shepherd. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you, Lord. We just ask you to guide the hearts, the mind, the thoughts of those who have not yet accepted you. And also, Lord, we just ask you to build up those of us who have accepted you on every leaning side and let us recognize what a privilege it is to be saved, what a privilege it is to have the opportunity to go out and speak to other people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us use every waking moment to serve you on this side of eternity, knowing that we will see you face to face and that we will be with you forever. Let us not waste the time that you have granted us here on this side. But Lord, let us be found busy in the work of the kingdom the moment that you bring us home. 
It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.